Welcome to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. In this episode, we explore how economic issues are discussed in the media, often talked about in ways that seem to minimize the needs of those who may not have the means to withstand recessions, contractions, or other economic downturns. This issue takes on greater urgency in an era of trying to control inflation and deal with recent regional bank failures. My guest is Lynn Paramore, writer and researcher with the Institute for New Economic Thinking. I appreciate you being here today. I've really been wanting to do this particular episode for a while as I'm listening to people talk about the economy and and a lot of the way I'm hearing things phrased. I thought it was just me. Like, wow, it seems like there's really no consideration for people who are working that they're really going to bear the brunt. And then, of course... I you know, started to hear Elizabeth Warren actually explicitly saying out loud the things that I was thinking in my head. So I just kind of want to explore you know, how we think about the economy in the mainstream in the U.S. and how we might reframe the way we think about it. It's interesting when you say the way we think. I think there are two categories of people who are thinking about the economy in the U.S. and their thoughts don't really align. There's a, a, a wonderful economist named Peter Timmon who has written about uh, something called the dual economy. And it's a phenomenon in which a country breaks down into really two separate economies. Uh, he puts the percentages at sort of 20% in one category. These are people with college educations good jobs, social networks to help them in case of an emergency, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's the 80% of the country, which is the low-wage sector. This is an economic system that is more characteristic of developing economies. This small percentage of people exerts tremendous influence and really makes the economic rules for the rest of the population. So to sort of put this in context, Two researchers, Martin Gillens and Benjamin Page, did a study a while back on policymaking, and they found that average citizens really have little to no influence on policy in the United States, and that includes economic policy. Politicians tend to uh, represent the wishes of elites. We have data on this. This is a real phenomenon. It's, it's something people have intuited for a long time, but now we have research that proves it. So the way ordinary people think about the economy, well, they would like to have banks being held accountable for their reckless and often illegal activities, but that doesn't seem to happen. They would like to have their social security and safety network expanded and protected. That often doesn't seem to happen. They don't want students going into horrific debt in order to get an education, and yet this happens. You know, you could go on and on and on with examples of how sort of we the people think about the economy in ways that are quite reasonable and would lead to a healthier economy for all. But then you have these elites that exert too much influence over the political system that distort how we run the economy. So we've got some really entrenched problems that are happening at a structural level. Was it always this way in the U.S.? When did this type of economic thinking take hold? That's a good point. You know, you kind of go back to the 80s and you begin to see a philosophy or an ideology of free market individualism taking over. That had been something promoted by neoclassical economists like Milton Friedman back in the 50s 
but no one paid that much attention to it until the sort of late 70s and 80s. And then it sort of took off. You have people like uh, Ronald Reagan, of course, in, in the UK. You had Margaret Thatcher, who really enthusiastically espouse this point of view. And it began to seep into the way, for example, students in business schools were taught about how the economy should work. Um, a fellow named Jensen started promoting at Harvard Business School a really pernicious ideology known as shareholder value ideology. And what that held is that the purpose of a company, any business or firm, is to enrich the shareholders. That was its sole purpose, not to uh, make products that are useful, not to serve the public. Um, it wasn't responsible to workers or responsible to uh, taxpayers. It was only responsible to uh, shareholders lining their pockets. And this idea became so successful and popular that if you ask people today, who uh, you know graduated from business school in recent years, they actually believe that it's a matter of law, which it isn't, by the way, except in very narrow cases. But it has been so successful. I mean, the, the lobbying of ideas has been quite a powerful force. It's interesting because businesses don't exist in a vacuum. They rely on taxpayer-funded infrastructure to grow and run their businesses. You use the roads, you use the post office. You know, you're using uh, publicly created resources to run your business. Absolutely. You know, uh, Elizabeth Warren has been uh, vocal on this point. These very wealthy business executives say, well, you know, we did it ourselves. We shouldn't have to give anything back. We shouldn't have to pay taxes because we created these businesses. Well, guess what? The taxpayers funded a lot of what made it possible for you to create that business and keep it running. I mean, the highway system, for example. You look at pharmaceutical companies, a lot of the research that those drugs rely on is funded by taxpayers through various government programs. You know, the basic research we pay for, and yet they're saying that they shouldn't have to pay taxes. Look at a company like Apple, oh, we made the iPhone. No, actually taxpayers, again, funded a tremendous amount of the research that made the iPhone possible, um, touch technology, all those sorts of things. This was publicly funded research. So of course they owe society, yes. but they don't want to pay us back. In fact, they want to rip us off even more. You know, the pharmaceutical companies want to drive up the prices of, of drugs beyond the capacity of people to pay for them. And, and Apple and other companies want to make products designed to, you know, not work after a couple of years or have to be replaced. That's how the taxpayers get thanked for our largesse. Businesses are created to fill a need, one would think, right? Oh, we need this product or we need this service. Yeah. And yet this profit motive, it feels to the layperson, and I don't know a lot about the economy, it feels that things are starting to run rampant. Well, that's exactly right. And one area that I've been researching lately that's really little understood by the public uh, in fact, it's a little understood by, uh, you know, people who study the economy, and that is the private equity industry. And that is a, an industry that used to be called leverage buyouts back in the 80s. If you sort of remember the go-go 80s, you would hear about these corporate raiders who would go in and buy up companies and strip them of assets, kind of soak up all the resources they could and then flip them and sell them for a profit. And they got such a bad reputation and there were so many fiascos associated with them 
that eventually they sort of retreated. But they rebranded themselves as hedge funds. Well, actually, as private equity, not hedge funds, but private equity, different, different entity and much more dangerous than hedge funds. So private equity really got uh, rolling and expanding after the financial crisis of 2008. And the reason it took off is that now you had these investment banks, you know, like Goldman Sachs, et cetera, and they were suddenly under scrutiny, right, from the financial crisis. Their activities were under scrutiny, and they had regulations uh, put upon them, Dodd-Frank being the main example. So they were not able to quite go on the reckless sprees that they used to endangering the public. However, what money in America tends to do is go to the least regulated sectors of the economy. So the private equity sector, which falls under what some economists call shadow banking, uh, took over some of the activities that the investment banks used to do. The primary business model of private equity is to borrow a ton of money, buy up companies, and mine them for money. They can do things like charge really high fees to manage the companies. They pile on debt, which they as the private equity firm aren't responsible for. And then their idea is to sell the company at profits in a few years. And, and there have been many cases, the public is beginning to get a, a trickle of information about what happens. You probably remember the store Toys R Us, right? Oh yes, of course. Everybody used to buy their toys there. Well, it actually went bankrupt. And if you look at what happened, there were three private equity firms, uh, KKR is one, Bain Capital. You may remember the name Bain Capital from mm -hmm. Mitt Romney. People would say, hey, Mitt Romney is a vulture capitalist. He has this predatory firm. Three of them took over Toys R Us and began to strip it of assets. They uh, forced the company to sell property and rent at very high rates. And basically, by the time they were done, the company was bankrupt. And the workers were treated horribly. Um, many of them didn't get their pensions. One of the tricks that private equity companies play is to really induce companies they purchase into bankruptcy so that they can slough off the pension obligations for those employees. So you can see here that there's this large sector of the um, financial industry that is preying on ordinary people. They're preying on the workers that work for these companies. And increasingly, they've been going after businesses where the customers are really unable to fight back. We're talking about nursing homes. Uh, the Carlisle Group, which is a big private equity firm, they have bought up many of the country's nursing homes. And many studies show that when they do that, they begin to cut services, health violations start to increase, and actually excess deaths occur. It can be fatal when these companies take over. But yet, the customers are not really in a position to fight back. The same thing with payday lenders. Tim Geithner, who we know from the Obama administration, is now the head of Warburg Pincus, which is part of this private equity industry. And they uh, like to buy up companies that prey upon the most vulnerable people, the poorest people you know, who have to use these services. And they'll sue customers. That's a tactic that they regularly use. They buy up rental properties. 
and jack up the rents. And if the people can't pay, they sue them. Well, exactly how did this happen? Isn't it just legalized theft? There is not just a revolving door between Washington and private equity firms. Forbes magazine, a rather business-friendly magazine, I might add, called it a passionate love affair. So government officials regularly, the minute they step out the door of their Washington office, they head straight for a private equity company. You'll find people like Newt Gingrich, uh, David Petraeus, uh, and, and people from both sides of the political spectrum, again, Tim Geithner, all working in private equity. And so you wonder why the government is doing the bidding of private equity because increasingly private equity is the government. And private equity has become so wildly profitable. I mean, to be able to strip productive companies of assets and resources and not be held legally responsible is tremendously lucrative. They are able to rig the rules in their favor, and that's how they have managed to avoid uh, accountability. You're listening to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. We're talking with Lynn Paramore, writer and researcher with the Institute for New Economic Thinking. What they've done with the nursing homes, uh, which again, particularly is the Carlisle Group, that has been so egregious that there's beginning to be public pushback. Uh, because there have been stories in the newspapers. But the private equity industry, they're very clever and they are really good at rebranding themselves. Now some of them don't even call themselves private equity anymore because they realize that that name is getting a bad reputation. They call themselves, you know, things like alternative asset managers or other kind of vague, opaque terms. So it's really hard for ordinary people to follow what it is that they're doing. So that's just one area in which ordinary people are getting preyed upon, harmed. And even sometimes in the case of nursing homes and emergency rooms, um, their lives are threatened by what these companies do, and there's hardly any way to hold them accountable. It's so disturbing to hear, and I'm thinking about, you know, journalism, going in and buying up local news buildings and then siphoning off the assets and then closing the papers. They love to go after sectors. They buy chains of restaurants, they buy lots of dental offices, roll them up under one brand, and they love to buy up newspapers. And when they do that, as you say, buildings begin to close, people get laid off, the coverage begins to shrink. I mean, it's getting to the point that if there's a local business that you count on, that you love, and you begin to notice deteriorating conditions or price hikes, or you know, untoward things happening, I would suggest you go online and start doing a little digging. Put in the name of that business and private equity, and you may very well find that one, two, three, four, five years ago, one or more private equity firms purchased that business, and they've begun to strip it and mine it and suck out the resources and really just suck the life out of it. I live in New York City, and recently I went to a restaurant that I um, hadn't been to in a couple of years, one that I really loved, and it was dirty and dilapidated, and it was understaffed, and I thought, hmm, let me do a little search. Sure enough, in 2018, it was purchased by a private equity firm. Same with my local grocer. It's now just a shell of its former self. I mean, you go in and it's like a ghost land. You can't find anything. You can't find anyone to help you. Yesterday, I walked by a very slick looking veterinarian's office that had just shown up in the neighborhood. And when you see a new service with, with sort of slick interface and it's inviting you as a customer to join 
things called membership programs, et cetera, stuff that you don't really associate with just taking your pet to the vet. I looked it up as soon as I got home. This was just last night. It's owned by private equity. What you're saying is that it sounds like we really need a strong education campaign because, you know, when it comes to things like newspapers, people think, oh, the newspaper is terrible now. I hate the reporters. And it's not about that at all. It's, there's something systemic and deeper going on here. That's exactly right. And, and there's a misunderstanding about retail. You know, so many stores have gone out of business because of private equity. And the message gets out, oh, well, this is because of Amazon, because of online shopping, blah, 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 blah. That is not true in many cases. In fact, Toys R Us, at the time they were taken over by private equity, they were doing very well. Even as they approached bankruptcy, they were still selling a ton of toys. It's just that they could not service the debts that had been put upon them. So they went under, not because there was anything wrong with the company, uh, but because private equity was, was sucking them dry. So the public perception about the reason for some of these retail bankruptcies and closures is not quite right. Now, you mentioned the politician to private equity pipeline. Yeah. And in the lay population, I think a lot of times we, the public, get caught up in the blame game. Oh, well, the Republicans aren't doing the job. Let's get the Democrats in. Oh, the Democrats aren't doing the job. Let's get the Republicans in. And really, that is not a good way to be thinking about this problem. How might the public start grappling with this? The Republicans have certainly been more eager to deregulate finance in general. I mean, we saw that under the Trump administration, which is part of the background. In fact, a lot of the background of this banking crisis that we've seen. Uh, they rolled back parts of Dodd-Frank. But let's not forget that Glass-Steagall, which was the law put in place in the wake of the uh, Great Depression, that was taken away under Clinton. So Democrats have definitely played their part in mismanaging the economy and letting finance uh, run rampant, and it's because of political donations. I would rather have a Democrat in office because they are sort of more likely to get behind regulation, but even under Trump, that rollback of uh, Dodd-Frank, there were a couple of Democrats on board with that. There's always one or two. So the, the blame really does go around. It's really the money in politics problem. I mean, that's the Gordian knot that we have to cut through somehow, because as long as we have such a regressive tax system and these executives at these private equity firms and other parts of the financial sector are able to keep all of their ill-gotten gains, they're going to rig the system. So that is really the heart of the issue that we have to confront. So what can be done? One change that could be made regarding private equity that this wonderful gentleman I spoke to in the um, Justice Department is in favor of, and his name is Brendan Ballou. He says the one change that could be made is to hold these companies legally responsible for what the businesses they purchase do. If you could just make that one change, make the public aware that this change needs to happen and we can really uh, get some enthusiasm behind activism. You know, we can change this. It would be great to take action to mitigate this issue. But in lieu of that, we're in the midst of a bit of a banking crisis with the folding of a couple of regional banks recently. It sounds like this is a direct result of recent deregulation. And again, it's putting everyday people at risk. This is another example of where the activities of financiers hurt ordinary people. The banking crisis is by no means 
over. We just had a run on First Republic Bank, and we've seen how destructive that is just this week. And the problem with this banking crisis, which you know started with Silicon Valley Bank and a couple of other banks, due to their reckless activity, which they got up to as a result of Trump's rolling back uh, parts of Dodd-Frank, and it was totally predictable that banks were going to start mm-hmm. misbehaving, by the way. Right, right. And so course. they did. But the problem for ordinary people, you know, the big banks are doing just fine. This is not hurting J.P. Morgan, for example. It's not hurting Wells Fargo. It's hurting small and mid-sized banks who are going to have to tighten credit. It's a perverse situation because the big banks are what's known as too big to fail. They know they have an implicit guarantee from the government to bail them out when they get in trouble, you know, as we saw in the financial crisis. And so they're going to be okay. But the smaller banks are in a much iffier position, and, and they've had mixed messages over the last few weeks. On the one hand, you know, you, you've had Jerome Powell saying, well, everybody's deposits are safe. And then you've had, you know, Janet Yellen saying, well, you know, maybe we're not going to guarantee every single deposit. And she's saying that for reasons that are understandable, because if you guarantee all the deposits, well, of course, bankers are going to be reckless. You know, economists call this moral hazard. Why wouldn't you, if you know you're going to make inordinate profits through reckless behavior? Yeah, with no consequences. With no consequences and somebody else bears the burden, i.e. you and me, the taxpayers and the depositors, why wouldn't you just roll the dice? You would. So it's a paradox. You know, what you need and how you avoid these crises and these ongoing problems is to put regulations on these banks and keep them. Right. (laughs) But of course, that's a political problem. But it's really worrisome because as these small banks and mid-sized banks tighten credit, it's going to impact communities that are not serviced by these big, gigantic banks, these communities that rely on these small and mid-sized banks for, you know, small loans to businesses. Families rely on them when they want to finance their kids' education, uh, buy a house, et cetera, et cetera. So this is really going to hurt ordinary people. And, you know, it may help push us into a recession, which, again, as we know... These tend to hurt ordinary people. The the very wealthy don't seem to suffer much. They end up, many of them, even wealthier when we have recessions. Right. And that gets me to sort of that primary question of the way recession and inflation are talked about and, and talked about with a straight face. You know, oh, we need to raise interest rates. We need to get the job market uh, under control. And, and what does that mean under control? Or we, we <laughs> that means fire people. That seems to mean um, make it more difficult to move around and get a job. That seems to mean to not have uh, capability for ordinary people to really live a healthy, prosperous, productive life. Everything you're saying is of great harm to yeah. the vast majority of the population. Yeah. And you know what? There's another kind of BS story that's been circulated uh, to the public. This idea that workers' raises are responsible for inflation. Right. <laughs> what? Yes. <laughs> that's a joke. I mean, you can look at the numbers and you can see, there are a few exceptions, but generally speaking, people's wages 
the raises have not kept up with inflation. So obviously, it isn't wages that are driving this inflation. In fact, there's data showing that it, it has been the increased spending of the very wealthy that has driven this inflation. And why have the wealthy uh, got so much money to spend? Well, you know, look at what happened with the stock market during the pandemic. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, it went up and up and up. And wealthy people did very well. And they have a larger share of wealth now than they did before the the pandemic. And they had a a very large share then. So they've had plenty of money to spend and they've been driving up inflation. And so you want to tackle inflation, deal with that. It's certainly not the person who is an hourly wage worker at McDonald's who's causing this inflation problem. That's ridiculous. The end uh, product here is people who aren't able to afford housing, people who aren't able to afford food or health care. And, and what sort of economy do we have or what sort of world do we have pushing ourselves to that kind of brink? That's exactly right. You know, ordinary people have a hard time even thinking about the future because they're, they're so worried about the present. They're so worried about keeping their head above water. There's very little social and economic mobility in this country anymore. The, the trajectory is going downward. It's the middle class slipping into the lower rungs of the economic ladder rather than the other way around. You know, we have this myth of America as a place where anybody can make it, and that's just not true. And, you know, if you look at what the high-income sector wants, um, these elites that influence policymakers so profoundly, they want to keep wages down, which is why you hear this BS story about wage workers driving inflation because they've had some raises. And they use a lot of very powerful tactics to get their way, including spreading their political contributions around, but also using things like um, social control and mass incarceration to keep people in line. And so when you hear stories that seem to align with those goals, I would tell people to, uh, to scrutinize those very carefully because it probably means <laughs> it's not what that 80% of America wants. It's what that smaller sector wants. Right. And they've convinced uh, a good percentage of Americans that that seems to be the right thing. So you mentioned earlier updating laws to regulate private equity. Do we have the will now to tackle and address these challenges? And the good news is we've done it before. Brendan Ballou, this prosecutor I spoke to, compared the private equity firms to the big money trusts that sort of metastasized at the end of the 19th century. And guess what? We took them on. We had the populist movement, we had the progressive movement, and we were able to challenge the business models of these companies and, in the end, uh, make them much less dangerous. We also later, you know, we had the New Deal, and we had Glass-Steagall, which put some rules on the banks that had gone wild and caused all the mayhem in the 1920s. Uh, when the stock market crashed. So all is not lost. We have a record in this country of being able to take these financial giants on. But as you point out, you know, the public really needs an education on what they're doing. Uh, and what needs to change in order to make them less dangerous and, and actually, God forbid, make them a productive part of society. You know, private equity or whatever you want to call it does have a role to play in providing money to companies that might need it to expand. But unfortunately, what's happened now 
with the way the rules are rigged, they're just incentivized to be destructive. You know, we hear about capitalism as creative destruction. Well, they've gone down the destructive route. They're no longer on the creative side. We need them to get back on the creative side. You know, you brought up the late 19th, early 20th century, and and I would argue that the muckrakers, the investigative journalists, were there doing these in-depth pieces. And, and, you know, during uh, the Great Depression in the 30s, when the New Deal came to be carrying that into the post-World War II era when there seemed to be an intentional desire to create a middle class. Yes. You know, given the context we're in, and I, I, I'm i a pretty positive, optimistic person, but we do have, you know, misinformation and echo chambers and journalism is really struggling to keep its footing. How we can manage this today, given some of the context that we face and AI, of course, coming on the scene? Yeah, it's very challenging, you know, and I'm not sure what the answer is, but certainly people like you are part of the solution. Um, We are able to talk about this and hopefully we're talking about it in a way that ordinary people can understand. You know, it's really hard to expect regular folks to get an education on finance. I mean, it's deliberately complex. So we really do need educators and journalists um, and podcasters and everyone we can recruit to help people understand what's going on. Thank you to my guest, Lynn Paramore, writer and researcher with the Institute for New Economic Thinking. Find out more at ineteconomics.org. Music in this episode includes Spring Fling by Track Tribe and The Heist by Silent Partner. In addition to hearing news in context every Friday at 8.30 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. on KSFP 102.5 in San Francisco, you can hear it on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, iHeartMedia, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Podbean, YouTube, and PRX. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at News in Context SF and on Instagram at News in Context. And you can find links to all of that at newsincontext.net. I'm Gina Valeria. Thank you for listening.